Hey, everybody. You are listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. I'm Jamin Brazil, your host. Our guest today is Marbu Brown, founder of the Customer Obsession Advantage and author of the Blueprint for Customer Obsession. Prior to starting his own consulting firm, Marbu has served as the head of customer experience at Chase, global lead of customer experience at Amazon, and senior director of customer experience management at Microsoft. Marbu, thank you very much for joining us on the show. Jamin, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, looking forward to having a very uh, stimulating discussion. The Michigan State University's Master of Science in Marketing Research Program delivers the number one ranked insights and analytics degree in three formats, full-time on campus, full-time online, and part-time online. New for 2022, if you can't commit to their full degree program, simply begin with one of their three course certifications, Insights Design or Insights Analysis. In addition to the certification, all the courses you complete will build towards your graduation. If you're looking to achieve your full potential, check out MSNMU's program at broad.msu.edu slash marketing. Again, broad.msu.edu slash marketing. HubUX is a research operations platform for private panel management, qualitative automation, including video audition questions, and surveys. For a limited time, user seats are free. If you'd like to learn more or create your own account, visit hubux.com. I am very excited about jumping in to discuss your book, but before we do that, let's get a little bit of context. Tell me about your parents and how they informed what you do today. Well, you know, before I even talk about my parents, let me start off by saying that you know, I'm originally from Liberia and I grew up in Liberia. So there's a couple of things I'm going to say about my parents where that context is important. But, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better set of parents who set a very phenomenal example for me. My father passed away before I was two years old. But as I grew up, everybody who I ever met that knew him spoke of him in such glowing terms that I just had a sense of pride about him. But also it instilled in me that I had an amazing legacy to live up to. And and to be quite frank, uh, my mother was chief among those who spoke about my father in glowing terms, so much so that uh, when she eventually remarried, I always wondered if my stepfather would get jealous sometimes when she was talking about my own father and my birth father. My stepfather was also amazing, by the way. So that was most of what I know about my father. I, I learned from other people talking about him, and it was just super positive. My mom, also, she was an incredibly accomplished educator, She was the first woman on the continent of Africa to be president of a university. And among other things, she instilled in me the value of a great education. During my years growing up, I spent a lot of time with her on the University of Liberia campus as she progressed through the ranks from dean, the vice president of academic affairs, and finally president. And, you know, for me, it was a foregone conclusion that not only would I go to college, but I would get advanced degrees and, you know, would it be, you know, a master's or a PhD, right? So I wound up getting both a master's in math and a master's in statistics, which really catapulted me into what I do today. 
But additionally, I have to say that my mom set an amazing example for me in so many ways. She was just a, a portrait of courage. If you know anything about universities in Africa, sometimes they and governments don't always see eye to eye on stuff. And let's just say that my mother always stood on the basis of her principles and didn't back down even in the face of uh, what sometimes, you know, were very perilous uh, situations. So um, that's who my parents were. And, you know, that's uh, how they kind of, you know, got me into what I do today. Your book is like in the crosshairs of what I've been talking about for the last five years. Estrella Lopez Brea, she was the head of insights for the serial group, I believe it was called, is called, uh, which is a joint venture between Nestle and Cheerios and whatever. They sell cereal to about 136 countries. Very big deal. Uh, General Mills, that's who, that's who the other party is. And the business is called Watermark Consulting. In that report, they talk about the importance of customer experience, uh, which was discovered by them through analytics that they did in the Fortune 500. And what they found was that companies that employed customer experience at the point of decision, they outperformed the index by about 45 points. Whereas, and this is the headline, those that didn't, they underperformed by 76 points. So no longer is it a question of, you know, should we employ customer experience? The question is really, do we want to be in business or not? And if the answer is yes, which obviously it is, then you better use customer experience or have that as a key part of your strategy. Now, this, of course, is exactly your book, and you're also kind of in alignment with the career that you've had at some of the most amazing brands in the world, Blueprint for Customer Obsession. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about the book? I did get a chance to read some of it already, so and then we'll, then we'll jump into some specific questions. Yeah, so Blueprint for Customer Obsession is, this book came about because, look, Amazon popularized the phrase customer obsession, and that phrase was coined to describe the extreme focus on the customer um, that they had in the business. And as the term became popular, a lot of people started to use it. But it's not very clear that all the people who were using customer obsession were speaking the same language or meant the same thing, right? And uh, so one of the things that I set out to do in writing Blueprint for Customer Obsession is to make very clear how customer obsession is distinguished from you know being customer centric or being customer focused and uh, so you know we lay out eight differentiators in the book <clears throat> that separate customer obsessed companies from their peers who are in one of those other categories that's you know what we set out to do and then really give people a way that they can assess where they are on this continuum of customer obsession and how they can put together a path um, to get into the actual category of being customer obsessed if that's what they choose to do. And that's essentially uh, what the book is about. When you think about the end part, the path, is that, a, and I haven't gotten to that part, I do apologize. Is, is that more of a workbook style where someone would employ that with their team? It's not necessarily a workbook style, but what we've done is we've laid out a continuum and a quick reference guide, if you will, that enables people to look at different categories across the spectrum, you know, from c companies that are customer indifferent to companies that are customer aware, 
or customer focused or customer centric or customer obsessed, right? And so first of all, they can look at where do they actually fit on the spectrum and that will inform them what kinds of things do they need to do differently to get to the next step. But then we also have a set of questions that they can work their way through that would help them to jumpstart that process and enable them to map out a path, right? So uh, that's how it's laid out. Today, I think most companies would self-describe themselves as being customer-obsessed. So let's just start out to be really clear. What does it mean to be customer-obsessed? And what would the outcome be? What What is the output of that? So let me give you a couple of illustrations of things that customer-obsessed companies do. And then other companies would ask themselves, they would do well to ask themselves if they have anything in place that is similar to this. You know, I used to to buy some oatmeal called Bob's Red Mill Steel-Cut Oats from Costco. They sold a pretty sizable package of that for $7.99. And there was a time I went into our nearby Costco to get that and couldn't find it. So I thought I'd go to Amazon and get it there instead. I went to Amazon and I saw a bag of Bob's Red Mill Steel Cut Oats for $17.99. And so I'm going back and forth. Is this the same size one? You know, I, I was just, I was trying to figure this out. So I thought, why don't I just go read the customer reviews? So the very first customer review on Amazon said, don't buy this at Amazon. You can buy the same thing at Costco for $7.99. Now, most companies would probably just take that review down. Amazon never will. Because the fact is, it's in the interest of the customer. And some folks would look at that and say, you know, in fact, there were people who actually said to Jeff Bezos when he allowed these kinds of reviews on his site, you don't understand your business. You make money when you sell things. And Jeff says, no. We make money when we help customers make great buying decisions. And so that's the kind of extreme thing that a customer-obsessed company would do. They would have that out there, and they won't take it down because they're going to help the customer make the right decision in terms of buying that. Now, the flip side story, though, is it also challenges the folks in Amazon retail to think about how come we can't sell it for that price? and figure out what do they need to do to be able to compete effectively with their counterpart, who is, is, you know, Costco selling this for very different price than than they had it for, you know, less than half. So this is the kind of thing that, you know, a customer-obsessed company would do. Now, let me flip the script a, a little bit and give, you know, another type of example. As I was putting things together on the book, I came across this one example of a lady who was taking a Christmas tree back to Costco, you know, in January, saying the tree had died. And they took it back. All right. Well, that's kind of like their extreme return policy at work. Right. And, you, you know, when you look at these kinds of things that these companies do, uh, people almost have to shake their heads and say, who does that? But the companies that are in the customer-obsessed categories, it's typical of them to have these types of policies that are basically extreme in the customer's favor 
And so that's an illustration of what makes them different from their peers, because their peers, when it comes down to adopting a policy, and there's a tiebreaker that has to be made between the customer and maybe business results, guess who's going to win? It's not going to be the customer. But when the company is customer obsessed, customer breaks the tie. So hopefully that answers the question for you. Yeah, there's two things that stand out to me. One is, it's a funny story about the Christmas tree. I've never heard that. I have a, a friend who, he they're kind of like, I'm going to tell you right now, just like out the gate. It, I always leave going, who does that? <laughs> <When we hang out. laughs> they recently moved and they apparently found some frozen pieces that they bought at Costco or someplace at the bottom of their freezer, which they, they had there for, they don't even know how long, like over years, right? multiple years. And um, they're like, what are we gonna do with these? And so they literally took them back to Costco and got a refund. (laughs) And you know, it's the kind of thing that you say, who does that? Right. But by the way, you know, in the book, I describe 10 companies that you would think of as customer obsessed. And as you might guess, Amazon's in the book and Costco's in the book there. They both are, you know, but That's the kind of thing that customer-obsessed companies do. And let me say something a little bit more about this. Look, returns is an area that's a big challenge for retailers. They are really into preventing returns fraud, to minimizing returns costs. It's a big cost for them. And so some would look at the Costco policy and say, you know, this is an invitation to returns abuse, right? But let's just say it works for them. And it works for them. Their numbers with their members are just phenomenal. And so the thing about these uh, customer-obsessed companies is they're not hurting even though they have these extreme types of policies. Yeah. One of the statistics that you cite in the book is Costco has a 90% retention rate of or renewal rate of its Costco memberships year over year. That's right. The other example that I wanted to give or want to give is um, a company called Fry's Electronics, which I don't believe is in business any longer. They were very popular, started in the 90s in the Bay Area, San Jose area, and grew very rapidly. They actually had a return policy that was so adverse to the customer, it was just ridiculous, like very frustrating. Uh, They incentivize, I happen to know one of the people that worked there, they incentivize their return clerks. These are people that would help process any item, default item or whatever. And they incentivize people, their their staff, based on the lack of return. So if I went in with a potentially $100 item to get a full return and because it was def- defective or whatever, and that person was able to negotiate down that return rate, they were incentivized or commissioned based on that delta. And it was just, it was a very frustrating, difficult experience if you did ever have something that went wrong and needed to get it resolved. And, you know, I think it's an interesting kind of counterpoint, right? And of course, now they're no longer in business, but a company that's like very focused on driving the financial model to their benefit at the expense of the customer experience. And then in the end, they wind up paying for it, right? And and they pay for it one way or the other. You know, in the case of that company, you know, no longer in business, In the case of customer-obsessed companies, their financials just keep getting better and better, even though the things that they do are counterintuitive and sometimes on the surface, they don't make economic sense. But then 
their customers aren't casual consumers. They're rabbit fans, right? Yeah. They keep coming yeah. back. And guess what? They're bringing friends and family and acquaintances with them. And, you know, their numbers just keep growing. And even willing to spend more money uh, for the same product uh, just in order to support the brand that consumers love. One of the examples that you give or terms that you coin, I would say, is, and this is in quotation marks because uh, it's an excerpt from your book. Mm -hmm. Bet the farm on extreme customer-centric policies. So bet the farm on extreme customer-centric policies is the term. And you cite a couple of examples, some of which we've already talked about. One of my favorites, and I've used this for years, is the Make It Right policy by Ritz-Carlton, where the, mm -hmm. anybody in the, in the business has a $2,000 uh, or has the liberty to spend up to $2,000 to satisfy some customer's need, whatever that customer uh, might be. You also cite Chick-fil-A, um, their closures on Sunday, which represents probably, I mean, I can't remember the exact amount of money, but conservatively, I would think it would be at least, you know, 20% revenue increase if they were open on Sundays, yet they're closed. So you've got these like major brands that are making business decisions and policies that are quite literally, it seems like almost to their detriment. And yet to your point, they're like unlocking cash uh, at record levels year over year. How is a policy like this a differentiator in, in the market? I think that some of the examples that we gave just a moment ago, it is why people go to these companies to do business, right? A lot of times somebody wants to buy something and they may see that particular item at another place. And then they say to themselves, why would I buy it there if I can buy it at Costco? And I know that if I have to return it, I can't. Now, they may never return it. You know, in fact, their returns might be a super small percentage of the time. But it gives them that confidence in shopping that says, you know what? I can do that if I need to. And so that's my safe place. That's my happy place, right? Or this customer, you know, says, hey, you know, if I go to Amazon and I check out all of those reviews and I understand what's going on, I can make the right decision about the purchase that, that I need to make, right? And also, guess what? My returns at Amazon are frictionless too. You know, so these kinds of things, um, you know, separate um, these companies out from their peers and they become the destination places. They become the place that people want to go, whether it's to search for stuff, whether it's to purchase stuff, you know, whether it's for travel, they become the destination places, right? And that's what differentiates them from their peers. It's interesting. You have these line items in a P&L, like financial statements, uh, like returns, and that's, that's always a, a negative, right? So mm -hmm. it goes against, maybe included in cost of goods or some other location. But in a lot of ways, the treatment of that should, or a proportion of it at least, uh, should be more in like customer engagement because it is representing a benefit to the customer and subsequent like customer annual value versus this being like this like kind of off the top penalty that brands might be thinking about. And when I think about like a small company, you know, $10 million or $50 million, you know, these kind of upstart firms, like I've kind of lived my career in, if we wanted to make a, our own, our own customer or similar policy, 
right? What sort of rubric, what kind of rules would we need to put in place when we think about what that policy should contain? Well, let me start off by saying, first of all, that customer obsession as a business strategy is a great strategy for small companies, for startups. Okay. It's, it's, it's part of how startups become big and great companies, right? You know, let me just mention Zappos is, is one of those companies that grew extremely rapidly. You know, one of those early companies that you call a unicorn, if you will. And one of the reasons they, they grew like that was because they had a customer obsessed mindset, right? And in some respects, they kind of beat Amazon at their own game and, and Amazon went and bought them, right? It still operates, uh, you know, pretty much independently. And um, so as customer obsessed as Amazon is and as Apple's is, they, they do things, you know, somewhat differently. But the bottom line is it helped them to grow rapidly. Chewy is another company that has grown rapidly, you know, adopting the same kind of customer obsessed mindset as their business strategy. So um, let me start off by saying that this is a great business strategy for smaller companies and startups that are looking to become um, very large companies. But I think the first thing that these companies need to do is they need to be prepared to embrace the principle that if something is good for the customer, it's good for business. Even if right at the moment, they don't have complete line of sight to how it will benefit them economically, okay? Now, let me be clear. I'm not talking about recklessness. I'm not talking about giving away the store, okay? But what I am saying is that generally, if you adopt that principle and you base your policies on that type of principle, that if it's good for the customer, it's good for business, it will pay off and it will pay off handsomely over time and sometimes a lot faster than these companies have thought about. So that's that's one of the things that has to happen. Second thing is that the companies need to work backwards from the customer. And, you know, sometimes when you say that, it, it's not all that clear, but, but a lot of times companies work back from the competition. They're thinking about what is the competition doing? Sometimes companies work backwards from conventional wisdom. You know, what's the conventional wisdom on how to do this particular thing? Sometimes they work backwards from, you know, products that they already have in place or services that they already have in place. And they, they think in terms of brand extension or, or those kinds of things, but they don't necessarily work backwards from the customer. And if they work backwards from the customer, they would wind up getting to a different point, okay, in terms of what they wind up bringing to the market and how that's going to help customers. Let me give you an illustration of something. When Apple introduced the iPhone originally, the iPhone was not compatible with Mac OS. And bottom line is those folks had a mandate to go out and create a great phone. Didn't have a mandate to go out and create a phone that was compatible with Mac OS. So working backwards from the customer, they built a great phone. Now, eventually it was linked to Mac OS and you've got the whole ecosystem, but you know, if they didn't work backwards from the customer, they just worked backwards from the competition or any of those other things that I mentioned, they would have wound up in a different place. 
it's such an interesting framework that you're describing and, and, and yet it's so obvious. Yeah, obvious, except that it isn't, right? That, that right. <laughs> so, so you got to be prepared to embrace the, the principle that if it's good for the customer, it's good for business, that they need to, to work backwards from the customer and let the needs of the customer break any ties. And then they need to ask themselves if they have a policy that's so customer-centric, yet so unexpected, that it makes customers do a double take. And, you know, they feel like, these folks have my back. They thought about this before I thought about it. Look, I'm going to give you another little crazy example. My wife and I were on vacation in Mexico, and we you know, belong to this uh, hotel group that, that has a bunch of, of hotels. And, you know, if you stay in one, you can use the facilities of any other one. And so, but they also give you free tours and all this kind of thing. We had done all the free tours. So we decided we were going to make our own tour. At the time we are in Cancun, we uh, went to the hotel in Playa del Carmen and from there walked over to the dock, took a ferry into Cozumel, right? So we're walking around in Cozumel, taking in all the sights and all that sort of stuff. It was a super hot day, right? So we go over to the, the sister hotel in Cozumel. And as we're walking into the hotel, the podium right at the entrance to the hotel, the guy standing there says, hey, what's the matter? Is it raining out there? He was kind of kidding around because we were all sweating, you know, like, um, he says, what's the matter? Is it raining out there? Then he reaches under the podium and he pulls out a tray. And the tray has cold towels in it that you can wipe your face with. And you get that and you say to yourself, have these guys thought of everything or what? I mean, they knew it was hot out there. They knew people were going to want to refresh themselves, you know, and that sort of thing. But they thought about it ahead of time. This is the kind of thing where when a company does that, it's customer centric, but it's also in some respect unexpected. And you have to ask yourself if the policies that you're putting in place fit that description. And these are the kinds of things that, you know, folks have to do to put this sort of stuff into place. And, and Blueprint for Customer Obsession, the book, gets into many more details about the kind of thing that I'm talking about here. But uh, hey, hopefully that gave you like a, a good framework for how to think about this. Yeah, it sure did. It was a great high level. And I'm looking forward to doing a deep dive into the book. I'm starting uh, right now at the time of the recording. This is October 27th, 2022. And of course, I'm starting to think about 2023 strategic plan, in which case, the book and the materials inside of it are going to be definitely part of that discussion. So it's timely for me. So I, I'm very appreciative of you and your time. I do have one more question, though. Mm -hmm. What is your personal motto? Well, look, um, one of the things I want to share is, uh, you know, having had the opportunity to, to lead a bunch of teams. One of the things that I always share with my team is that you have a, a job so you can have a life, but you don't have a life so you can have a job, <laughs> right? And really what it comes down to is that you need to do something that you really love. And if you're doing something that you really love, it's not work, right? You know, this is something that, you know, I share with folks who work with me, who work as part of my teams. And I think it's, you know, something really good for people to hold on to. Our guest today has been Marbu Brown, founder of the Customer Obsession Advantage and author of The Blueprint for Customer Obsession. Marbu, thanks for being on the show. 
Well, thank you so much, Jamin, for having me. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And, you know, I hope we provided um, some nuggets for all of the folks who are out there listening today. I don't think you have to worry about that. I certainly got some nuggets out of it. So I think if having done almost 500 of these, I'm sure some of our listeners did as well. Everyone else, I appreciate you and your attention. If you found value in this episode, please take time. Tag it on social media. LinkedIn is preferred. Add me and I will send you a free t-shirt. Have a great rest of your day.